take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 7. Yesterday was a, uh, a great day, always is, 4th of July, and we've had a great couple of days celebrating that, but here in Nashville, the, the news of 4th of July and the celebration of 4th of July was marred a little bit by local celebrity, right? came to a tragic end, and I got to thinking about, and we mentioned this at the beginning last week when we talked about Revelation chapter 3 and Jesus talking to the churches about lukewarm churches and lukewarm Christians. And I got to thinking about with the 4th of July and all the celebration we do in this country and then with the tragic death of Steve McNair yesterday piled on top of it seems like celebrity after celebrity over the last few days. I got to thinking about how meaningless this life is without an understanding of who Jesus Christ is. Now, I'm not making any kind of assessment of Steve McNair's faith. I don't know anything about who he is in his spiritual walk. But what I know is that over the last few days, we have seen people who supposedly had it all see their lives come to an end, some tragically, some prematurely, some like Ed McMahon, just as old age came. But in the midst of all of that, I was reminded of how fruitless and worthless it is to gain all that we think is important. I mean, you just think about it. You had one of the biggest selling recording artists of all time who, by the end of his life, was so desperate for money and fame, was planning a world tour that he obviously wasn't in good health to do, and was addicted to medication to help him make it through the day. A guy like Billy Mays that some of us, some of you may have heard, not heard of, but a guy who lived the quote-unquote American dream, selling junk on TV, became very successful, and yet died of a heart attack unexpectedly. Or somebody like Steve McNair, who literally grew up in a small town on the wrong side of the tracks, couldn't even really get a chance to play for a major college, so he went to Alcorn State and built such a career for himself there that they had a Sports Illustrated cover that said, Give him the Heisman from a small little school. Went on to the NFL. You know his career better than I do, those of you that lived around Nashville, but came within one yard of obtaining the ultimate goal in sports these days. And I fear over the days that are coming that we will learn more about Steve McNair than we want to know. But it appears that the end of his life was still searching for fulfillment. And it got me to think about this thing we call the American dream. Now let me say right from the beginning, I love this country. I love being a part of this country. I would not want to live anywhere else in the world. But I'm afraid that we've taken something that was a noble concept in its birth about the fact that all people deserved freedom and we've turned it into something where all people deserve the right to be able to make a good living. And we think as Americans, if we attain to those things, then we will find fulfillment in life. And yet we are fooling ourselves because Scripture makes it abundantly clear that those things do not fulfill. 
And last week we talked about lukewarm Christians, and I read off that list of things that Francis Chan has kind of enunciated what lukewarm Christians look like. And this week, as I was preparing and thinking, I was asking the Lord, Lord, I want to give an example of someone who was not lukewarm. And there are many people in Scripture. that I went back and forth the first part of the week praying about it, studying it. And about middle of the week, God began to just kind of work in me something that, that I knew I was going different than I'd been planning on. And as the week wore on, Stephen just came back to me. And what I really want to talk about today is how do we guard against becoming lukewarm? Let me just tell you that for Christians, if you just live your life without any effort or attempt to follow Jesus, you will fall into a lukewarm state. And so the question I have today is how do we avoid that? And I think the life of Stephen gives us that. We're, we're not going to be able to read the full passage because it, it's really Acts 7 and first part of 8. And there's a little bit in 6 and we're going to jump around a little bit. But I want us to go to the end first before we go back to the beginning. And in verse 54 of chapter 7, we have the ending of Stephen's life. Now, most of you that grew up in church, you know this, but we're going to read it again, all right? It says, when they heard this, what's this? We'll we'll talk about that in a minute, but it was a bold proclamation of who Jesus Christ is. They were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. Now, I know for us today, to hear gnash their teeth doesn't sound like a very, you know, disturbing. I mean, it sounds kind of weird, but we don't talk about gnashing teeth. They were mad at him, all right? And they displayed it. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Verse 57, at this they covered their ears yelling at the top of their voices. You get the picture there? Any of you ever have children that didn't want to hear what you were saying to them? Right? Anybody have that? Put their hands over their ears. Ah, ah, not listening, not listening. All right? They didn't want to hear it. And so what do they do? They put their hands over their ears and they rush at him. Dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Sometimes we get a wrong picture of what stoning was in that day. We get the picture of people over there picking up stones like we have in our driveway or gravel or small little stones. That's not what stoning was, all right? Most scholars have pictures or talk about this this image of people being stoned, literally being sometimes held down, sometimes at a distance, but large stones, two-handed, over-the-head kind of stones being thrown down upon a person until they were dead. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Sound familiar? Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Again, sound familiar? When he had said this, he fell asleep. We'll talk about this in a minute, but That makes it sound so peaceful for a man who's getting inundated with stones. Saul was there giving approval to his death. And on that day, a great persecution broke out 
against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off men and women and put them in prison. But those who were scattered preached the word wherever they went. I want to give you three ways this morning that we can help to stave off lukewarmness. Now, I mentioned last week, and this is one of those debatable kind of issues, is I think the word lukewarm Christian is, is an oxymoron because I think if you live in a state of lukewarmness for a long period of time and you don't care that you're lukewarm in your faith with Christ, then you need to evaluate whether or not you have a relationship with Christ. And so the question this morning is, how do I further my commitment to the Lord? How do I chase after the things that matter? How do I, when I get to the end of my life, whether it is prematurely or whether it is I have lived out my years, that I know at the end of my life I have not lived in vain. I have not given my life for things that will not matter. I have not suffered for things that will fade away in the long scope of history. How do I know I am giving my life to something that is worthwhile? The first thing that I want us to see is the way that we guard against that is that we embrace the mission. Now, those points aren't going to be up on the screen today, so you're just going to have to write them down. But you need to embrace the mission. Give you a little background on Stephen. Stephen comes to the forefront really in Acts chapter 6. And in Acts chapter 6, Stephen is one of the men that is chosen to be one of the first deacons. And as he's chosen to be one of the first deacons in the church, one of the first kind of administrators in the church, he's taken some of the pressure off of the apostles. Now here's the reason. The apostles were beginning to get bogged down with stuff. Remember in Acts 1.8, you've heard me quote it a lot. We talk about being an Acts 1.8 church. It says that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You remember that? And God miraculously, this is one of the cool things that happens, in Acts chapter 2, brings the nations of the world to Peter, and Peter proclaims the message. And so you have people all over the world that have heard it. But after that, there is such a response in Jerusalem that the disciples and the apostles begin to figure out how in the world do we take care of all of this? And if you get to Acts 6 and 7, what you find out is the message, the mission, has gotten a little bogged down in Jerusalem. It hadn't been spread much further than that. Now, that doesn't mean that there weren't converts other places because people had left Pentecost and they go back. But if you see in Acts 6 and 7, you find out that what happens is it gets a little bogged down. Why? I mean, these are the men that walked with Jesus. These are his closest associates. These are the men that loved him, committed themselves to them in that upper room. The fire came. They had it in their hearts. They were proclaiming. Persecution was happening. They were bold in the face of it. Why did it get all bogged down? It got bogged down because parts of the ministry turned into maintenance instead of mission. In Acts chapter 6, they said, listen, we ain't got time to deal with the widows. Now, they'll tell you in seminary, that's not a good statement to say when you're a pastor, all right? And the Scripture says that they have to be taken care of. But we don't have time to do that. We're finding ourselves too involved in the maintenance of the ministry than in the mission of what we're supposed to do. And along comes Stephen. And Stephen is going to be the tool God uses 
to break them out of that maintenance mentality. At the uh, Southern Baptist Convention a couple of weeks ago, there was a lot of discussion about the fact that there is a new task force that has been commissioned to evaluate our Southern Baptist Convention structure. A lot of discussion on Internet, on TV, newspaper. You may have read in the Tennessee in an article or two about it. And here's the concern on the heart of many pastors across this land, including mine, is that the Southern Baptist Convention has become so maintenance-minded that we've lost our vision for the mission. And let me tell you, my biggest prayer for this church is that we would not become people who are maintenance-minded. That we would not be about taking care of what's already here. That we would not get bogged down in all of the stuff and forget the mission to which God has called us. Look it back at chapter 6. You can flip over a page or two. Here's what's different about Stephen. Stephen is not one of those nice Jewish names. Stephen at least had some Greek in him. And what happens is the Word of God is spreading among Jerusalem. Look at verse 7 of chapter 6. The number of disciples in where? Jerusalem increased rapidly. And so you've got all these good things happening in Jerusalem, but Stephen is going to be the one that is used to push it further. And so in chapter 6, verse 8, you have this man who is seized. And it's a man full of God's grace in verse 8 and power. He did great wonders and miraculous signs, and opposition rises up. Verse 10, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Now, just a quick aside there. Two things I notice in that passage that we all must understand is that we cannot be advocates of the gospel of Jesus unless we have the knowledge, but more important than that, we have the backing of the Spirit of God in our lives. That we are empowered by Him. They stirred up the people in verse 12. They seize Him and they bring Him before the Sanhedrin. Verse 13, they produce, produce false witness who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking. We heard him say that Jesus would destroy this place and change the customs. Moses, heaven forbid we change the traditions. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently, and they saw on his face was like the face of an angel. What God is preparing to do is to shake the church again in a way that will move them to the mission. Sometimes I hear statements about uh, when we're getting prepared for a mission trip. You know, we have 28 people leaving Friday for a mission to Brazil. My brother-in-law David and his family are here this morning, and he pastored a church called Crossgates in uh, Jackson, Mississippi, and they just had a group return from an area near where we are, working with the same kind of projects, and just an amazing week they had. Sometimes as a pastor, when you really promote international missions, you talk about international missions, you send teams on international missions, somebody will just make a little side comment every now and then to you. I, I just don't know about all that because I just think about all that money y'all are spending going there, what good it could do here. And in one way, I agree with that. You know, the truth is that God calls us first to go to Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria, but He also calls us to go to the ends of the earth. And this is what I have discovered in my 
brief time pastoring and in my brief time observing churches is churches that aren't willing to go internationally rarely go locally. And so it's not about an either or. It is an all-inclusive mission. And what Christ has called you to do is to be involved in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You see, sometimes in church, individuals think that's for the church, and it is. But it's also for you. He didn't give excuse slips to people and say, you can just have this part. And so we have to understand that what drives us as believers to make sure we don't fall into a lukewarm or semi-warm state is that we continually go after the mission of God. Let me encourage you in some ways that you can do that. First of all, you simply have to pray for God's mission. I'll give you an easy way to start this week is you pray for us as we go. You pray for us as we go to Brazil. We're going to Porto Segura, Brazil. 28 of us going at the end of the service. We're going to be up front so you can identify someone you're going to pray for. But you pray for us. If you're looking for ways to practically pray for things that are happening in the world, there's now a website that used to be a book called Operation World. I think it's just operationworld.com. If you put it in Google, it'll come right up. Every day they'll give you a part of the world to pray for. And let me tell you this. I know as Americans in particular, when we pray for other countries, we don't see the results and that frustrates us. We just got to learn to deal with it. Because God calls to be faithful in praying for the peoples of the world that need to hear about Him. And we need to do it. You need to pray. You need to give. You need to figure out a way that you can give to international missions through Lottie Moon, through uh, Annie Armstrong for North American Missions, through our church Acts 1-8 fund. We're thankful for the gifts that were given to this Brazil team and the fact that we're able to go out of this church. We're grateful for that. But you need to learn how to give, and then you've got to learn to go. Commit to go. My personal opinion is, that every believer of Jesus Christ in their lifetime needs to be on mission for the Lord right where they are on a regular, consistent basis. But they need to make sure they go somehow to our Judea and Samaria, to our nation, our near neighbors, the people that are not quite like us. And I think every believer of Jesus Christ goes overseas internationally at least once in their lives, and that's probably cheapening what Jesus would want. Well, I just don't know that I'm called to that. It's not a calling. It's a command. First thing that we do is embrace the mission. Here's the second thing we do. We embrace the king. In Acts chapter 6 and 7 and 8, we see a man full of wisdom and of the Holy Spirit who stands in front of the Sanhedrin with his life on the line and begins to tell them a history lesson. I can imagine that there were some men in the Sanhedrin when he starts talking about Father Abraham, when he starts talking about the Chaldeans, when he starts talking about Joseph, when he gives them a history of the Old Testament, they are just rolling their eyes. Who is this man to come in here and tell us about our faith? 
I mean, he goes through Old Testament after Old Testament stuff. And then he gets to this part where he <laughs> kind of turns it over to them. He, he talks about that God doesn't want sacrifices, doesn't want just our bodies. He wants our hearts. And he gets to verse 51. And let me just give you a piece of advice. If you want to save your life and you're standing in front of people who can take it from me, this is not what you generally say. Verse 51, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts, chapter 7, 51, and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? It's interesting how time and hindsight gives us perfect vision, right? The Sanhedrin would have gone, yeah, our fathers did Elijah wrong or... They didn't really treat Jeremiah right. Isaiah didn't get the best treatment. And so he says, you're just like them. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. Out of all of that he just said, the thing that would have cut them literally to the heart was that part about them being uncircumcised in their hearts. Because what he says is, you have a form of religion, but you don't have the power of God because you have rejected the Holy One. One of the most dangerous things in the American church right now is that we have embraced the form of Christianity but have rejected the King at the center of it. We have all of the buildings and we have all of the programs and we have our Bibles and we have our songs and we have our stuff and we have our devotionals and we have our quiet times and we have our prayer times and we've got all this ministry and we do missions, but we're missing in the middle of it King Jesus. Let me ask you a question. How much do you love Him? Not what He gives you, not what He offers you, not the benefits you gather from being in a community of people that say they all love Him. How much do you love Him? I read a quote this week that asked this question. It said, how disappointed would you be if when you got to heaven, you had everything you had ever wanted in this life. The streets of gold were there. The mansion was there. You were able to see your friends and your family. You were able to talk with people that were all over the place that you had missed for so many years. That you were able to play all of the games and the sports that you had ever wanted to play. That you were able to run with abandon. And you had all of that stuff, but you realized suddenly that Jesus was not there. How satisfied would you be? And the problematic thing for most of us is, if we're honest with ourselves, that might be okay. Some of you are saying, but I, Pastor, I mean, that, I don't even know what it would be like to have a relationship with Him. I mean, I prayed the prayer, I've asked Him into my heart, but what do you mean <laughs> do you love Him? When you look back at the Old Testament, the thing God got most fired up about was when His people went through the motions without caring about Him. In the book of Malachi, He says, I wish that you had people that would lock the doors and not let anybody into sacrifice because they don't 
even care about me. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 58, he looks at him and he says, You have brought the fast. You have come and brought the offerings. But is that what I want of you? Just some stuff? Just for you to deprive yourselves? I don't want that. I want you fulfilling my goal and my mission in life. And let me tell you that what Jesus wants from you is not your stuff and it's not your deeds and it's not your works and it's not your life. It's you. I wouldn't want to see a show of hands in this room of how many people have actually conversed with their Savior in the last six months. I'm not talking about praying at Him. I'm not talking about throwing stuff up to heaven. I'm talking about spending time with Him. We have to embrace the mission and we have to embrace the King. And here's the last thing. We have to embrace the suffering. I want to show you why. Because I believe that suffering is the number one thing God uses to multiply His kingdom on this earth. That's a problem for us, and we'll get to that in a minute. Back to verse 54. He calls them stiff-necked. He calls them uncircumcised. He tells them they just killed the, the, the very one who had been foretold, and they don't like it. You understand why they're mad at him now? They were furious and they gnashed their teeth. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, this is another one of those moments when you, if you've got people around ready to kill you, this is another one of those moments you might be hesitant to say what he says if you want to live. He goes, oh, by the way, guys, y'all getting ready to do this. Here's the amazing thing. Heaven just opened up and I see the Son of Man. Now, the Son of Man is one of those terms that we've lost its significance. But if you look back, Specifically in the prophets, Daniel, you see the Son of Man as a title for the one who controls all things. That is the glorious one, the righteous one, the heavenly one, the all-powerful one. He says, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. There are a lot of discussion about why the Son of Man is standing. And you can look back and forth. Two main kind of ideas are there. One is, because every other place in Scripture you see Jesus at the right hand of the Father, He's doing what? Sitting. One is that He is standing literally for Stephen, as if to say, what you're doing right now is exactly what you need to be doing. Even if those men kill you, I will always be here. I am standing for you. And I think that there is an element of that that in this for sure. There are other commentators that I had not seen until this week. I don't know if my mind was blind to it. Maybe it's one of those things that I I just looked in different places that hold that what's happening here is that Jesus is standing in judgment on those people that are about to kill Him. Either way, it's an acknowledgement that what Stephen has done is right. You ever heard the phrase, the safest place in the world is at the center of God's will? You ever heard that? Anybody ever heard it? Yes, no, yes. Let me just tell you right now, and we're going to talk about this in a minute, that the center of God's will may be the most dangerous place on earth. At this, they covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. 
You see, what I believe is happening here is that God is using the tool that He has used time and time again in history. I'm not saying God commissioned Stephen's death, but God was going to use what Satan intended for evil for good. And as Stephen is about to be crucified, we are given specific parallels to the life of Jesus to remind us that he's suffering for his Savior. What are those parallels? First of all, they drag him out of the city. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus was dragged out of the city. You've got this reference to clothes being laid, even though it's not Jesus' clothes being divided. There are clothes that are laid. And then obvious allusions are there in 59 and 60. While they're stoning him, Jesus says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Remember on the cross, Jesus looks up into heaven and says, Into thy hands I commit my spirit. Then he fell on his knees as he's being hit by these stones, being stoned to death, and said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Remember on the cross, Jesus looked at the crowd and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. And when he had said this, he gave up his spirit and died, or he fell asleep. Paul would make this statement a couple of times in Scripture that he was filling up the suffering of Jesus and living out his life. That doesn't mean that Jesus had more suffering to do. It just means Paul wanted to be a part of it. There's that famous quote that we all like to quote, that I want to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. You can see that on the back of T-shirts sometimes. I remember when I was in high school, for some reason, my high school baseball team had that on the back of their T-shirt. I liked it. They used it to talk about Jesus, but... Doesn't really have anything to do with baseball. But oftentimes you see that on the back of shirts, you, you you miss the next phrase. And to share with him in his sufferings. You see, the American dream teaches us that we ought to be able to gain a life that is prosperous and good and everything we want. But the kingdom dream says that we've got to give it all up for Him. If you look at the history of the church and places where the gospel has exploded, you will see that it is almost always accompanied or began by severe persecution. Remember I said Acts 1-8 was the goal of the church, right? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Where had the gospel gotten stuck for a little bit? Jerusalem, right? Where had it gotten stuck? Jerusalem. Look at what happens. They stone him. He falls asleep. Saul's there giving approval. Second part of verse 1 of chapter 8. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout where? Where? Where they were supposed to be going anyways. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. What's interesting is Paul will be one of the greatest builders of the church here. He's trying to destroy it, and he's going to find out very quickly that what he's trying to destroy cannot be destroyed. Going from house to house, he dragged off women and men and put them in prison. So the great persecution starts happening, and these people start going, you've got to get out of town. You've got to leave. If you don't leave, you're going to be killed. Get out of town. And so they start to spread. Where? Throughout Judea. In Samaria, right? 
And look at what verse 4 says. I love this. The NIV does something wrong here, in my opinion. They put it under Philip in Samaria. That's not where it goes. It goes with that first part. Because Paul, Saul, excuse me, it's not Paul yet, wants to destroy the church. But verse 4 tells us that those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. The last 15 years, I've heard talk about the need for revival in America. Watching that video, it is, it is hard for us to imagine leaders in our country talking like some of our founding fathers. And I'm not saying that religion, that we need a revival in America to revive our politics. That's a separate issue to me. We need a revival in America to revive the church. And people say, well, when is revival going to come? What's going to happen? How is revival going to happen? When's it going to begin? And it doesn't have to begin like this. God can do it any way He wants to do it. And I pray daily for God to do something supernatural in this country to bring us back to our knees in order to serve Him more completely and advance His kingdom around the world. Because there is nobody in the history of the world that has had more resources to take the gospel to the rest of the world than the American church. And we're not doing a very good job. And I just have this feeling that revival is not going to come in America till we get uncomfortable. And I'm not talking about the stock market losing 800 points. Or even 8,000 points. I'm talking about when it becomes dangerous again for us to proclaim the name of Jesus. Now, I'm not suggesting you go looking for persecution. But I am suggesting that the worst thing to happen to the church in America is not necessarily that we get pressured from the outside. Because what happens in those places where persecution comes is the wheat and the tares are separated before that final judgment day. And people who are embracing the mission and embracing the king are willing to embrace the suffering and do whatever is asked of them. We think the world would be impressed if we lived our lives better than everybody else. It's a popular TV preacher that talks about your best life now. And I'm afraid that oftentimes in America when we hear that, we immediately think of cars and houses and money and bank accounts and stuff. The world is not impressed at all with people who have stuff. Even these celebrities that have passed away in the last few weeks, they will be off the scene in two weeks because there will be new stories to chase. What impresses the world is when we are hit with insurmountable odds, yet through the power of the Holy Spirit living through us, we're able to live with a joy that exceeds anything they can imagine. When you talk to people or hear testimonies of people across the world that are enduring persecution, one of the things that they will tell you is, yes, we would like for this not to be here, but don't necessarily pray that the persecution ends. Pray that we are strong in the midst of it. And my question for you this morning is, are you willing to do what needs to be done in order to live your life passionately devoted to Jesus? I want to tell you right now that the normal American lifestyle of 
two and a half kids and a white picket fence and two cars in the garage is not what Jesus had in mind when he says, I have come to give you life and give it to you more abundantly. That's not what he had in mind. What he had in mind were men and women, boys and girls, who were passionately proclaiming the name that is above all names, that brings hope to the hopeless, that gives a life where there is death, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, living their lives devoted to Jesus. And we oftentimes are people that embrace the maintenance, embrace everything but the King, and run from suffering as fast as we can. And yet we wonder why the power of God isn't demonstrated in our lives. Simple question today is, are you willing to live your life guarded against being lukewarm by being passionate about following Him?